Okay, so we're looking at verses 7 and 8 of 1 Peter chapter 4, and you see the word but there. The, the word but is a, a statement uh, that is building upon what was said in verses 5 and 6. Verses 5 and 6 told us that judgment is coming. A lot of times we hear people say, the end is near. Sometimes maybe you've been in a public place and you've seen someone with a cardboard sign, the end is near, or they put it on a car, and they say it a lot. And people have actually been saying that kind of thing uh, a little bit more in the past year and a half uh, because of some things that have been happening in our world. But the Bible doesn't stop there. It doesn't just stop by saying the end is near. It actually tells us how to live in light of the end. And that's what our passage is about. Judgment is coming, and uh, the judge uh, is the one uh, who uh, will uh, be the one to whom we have to give an account. And so this passage tells us about both the vertical relationship and the horizontal relationship, the spiritual dimensions of our living in light of the end. The vertical dimension is love for God. It's our relationship with God. And the horizontal dimension is love for man. And so this verse says, uh, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. That's our relationship to God. That's a vertical dimension. And then it goes on to say, and above all things, have fervent love for one another. For love will cover a multitude of sins. That's a horizontal dimension. Our dimension, the dimension of our relationship to other people uh, specifically those who are believers, who are joined together in Jesus Christ. So we have this opening statement, the end of all things, and then we have the word therefore uh, telling us that in light of the end, we are to be serious and watchful. And then we have um, the horizontal dimension given to us in verse 8. So first, verse 7, uh, this is talking to us about the end. And as we saw, I was building on what was said in verses 5 and 6, at the end of uh, that section, uh, Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes that the people on the earth will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. They will face the judge. And then verse 6 says that they will be judged, that there is a judgment to come. And that's important for us to recognize but Peter is actually talking about something more than just simply the fact that the judgment is right around the corner. He calls it, in this verse, the end of all things. The end of all things. It's quite a broad statement. And it's talking about the end of the whole created order. It's talking about the end of all of the things that are part of this world that is passing away. And Peter is saying that it's at hand. It's at hand, which means in the original that it's all ready. It's ready. It's ready and prepared. The end, the consummation of everything in the created order and the coming back of Jesus Christ is all prepared. It's all set. Modern man says, really? Everything is prepared? All I see is chaos and destruction. I see a virus. I see governments going crazy. I see all kinds of stuff. And they scoff. 
But Peter doesn't defend this statement. Instead, he actually assumes it. This is what has been accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ. Remember what it said back in uh, chapter 1 and verse 13, uh, after announcing that the prophets have told us about the gospel, uh, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow, building on the fact that we are receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls, we're told in uh, chapter 1 and verse 13, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and set your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is grace ahead. There is grace above. And the Apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is telling us too that everything is prepared. The Lord Jesus has, has been uh, lifted up. He's been made alive in the Spirit. We read that in chapter 3 and verse 18. And we read in chapter 4 and verse 5 that he's the, the judge, the one who's going to judge the living and the dead. So the Lord Jesus Christ has been raised and he's been appointed as the judge and everything is all prepared. And this kind of language of the end that's sure to come, it's, it's all throughout the Bible. It's in John 9, verse 4. It's in Romans 13, verses 11 and 12. Philippians 4, verse 5. Hebrews 10, verse 25. James 5, verse 8. 1 John 2, verse 18. And Revelation 22, verse 20. This idea of the preparation of the end. Everything is prepared. And so we're told two things. Be serious and be watchful in your prayers. Be serious and be watchful in your prayers. But the word right before that is therefore. And the reason that that word is there is to tell us that this is how we are to live in light of the end. This is how we are to be prepared for what has been prepared for us. And both of these statements are actually connected in significant ways to prayer. Be serious and watchful in your prayers. First of all, let's think about what it means to be serious. Back when he was at Wheaton College, about seven years before he died, Jim Elliott was writing a journal. He was a missionary. He, would about to, he was about to go to the mission field and actually be killed uh, on the mission field by the Alka Indians. But in his journal, seven years before that, in a moment of reflection, Jim Elliott wrote, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott was serious. He was a serious man. And he told Elizabeth Elliott that he was, he was serious before they got married. They got married and, and Jim Elliott very seriously went to the mission field and gave his life for Christ. But in that moment of reflection, Jim Elliott is modeling what we're looking at in this passage, what we're thinking about in terms of being serious. It is to be clear-minded. It is to be self-controlled and clear-minded. It's along the lines of what was said uh, to young men in Titus 2, verse 6, where the Word of God says, Exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. 
Titus was told to exhort the young men to be sober-minded, to be serious. And that's a, a difficult thing for a young man. And that's why it's so significant that uh, Jim Elliott was given that grace to be so serious at such an early age. We're called upon to be serious. Why? Because the end of all things is at hand. Because everything is prepared. Because there is a judge and he's coming back. And we are in the last time of human history. And there is one thing that truly matters. And that is to be uh, living in light of the soon arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Word of God goes on to tell us to be watchful in our prayers. Watchful. It's having to do with being alert. It's the kind of watchfulness that Jesus was talking about in Matthew 24 when Jesus told His disciples that they would be delivered up to tribulation and killed, that they would be hated by all nations for His name's sake. Now He's sobering up their minds. He's telling them uh, what it means to be watchful. These are the things that are going to happen. And then many will be offended, he writes. Matthew, or He says in Matthew 24, verse 10, many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But then Jesus says this, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. That's the alertness that the Word of God is calling us to, to be those who are able to discern what is most important in order to endure to the end. Amazing that Jesus says that. And then he goes on to build on that in Matthew 24, uh, verse 42, and he says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Lord Jesus Christ says that. He tells them to watch. He tells them to be ready. And then just a couple of chapters later, the Lord Jesus Christ is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he finds them sleeping. Amazing pattern of the, the Gospel of Matthew in this section after the Lord Jesus Christ has talked about watchfulness in chapter 24 because what happens in chapter 25 is that he uh, tells the parable of the ten virgins, he tells the parable of the talents, and he tells uh, about the uh, judgment of the Gentiles, the separation of the sheep from the goats. He talks about readiness in various ways. And then we have this whole account of the plot to kill him, of the betrayal of Jesus Christ, of the, the Lord's Supper instituted, which we will celebrate today. And then he predicts that Peter will deny him. He is uh, betrayed and arrested uh, after being in the garden. In the garden, after he's told them to watch, after he's uh, told them exactly what was going to happen, and Peter did not think he was going to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is in the garden. And he's the only one watching. He's the only one who's alert. He's the only one who really is serious enough to stay awake. Chapter 26 and verse 40. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. 
The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. You know what that teaches us? That teaches us that we need the Lord Jesus Christ to lead us in watchfulness. We need the Lord Jesus Christ to lead us in watchfulness, and he actually led us at one of the weakest times, the time when he was most abandoned, the time when he was suffering under the attack of the evil one. And the Lord Jesus Christ tells Luke, uh, Peter in Luke 22 that he prayed for him, that his strength would not fail. After the apostle Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ, he restored him in John uh, 21. Because the Lord Jesus Christ is the one, you see, who enables watchfulness to take place. So when you think about your vertical dimension to the Lord, it's important that you remember that being serious and watching do not depend exclusively on you. What you're receiving in the supper is the Lord Jesus Christ. What you're hearing in the word is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you need him. You need that vertical dimension because this is how God enables you uh, to be watchful. That's an important principle. Uh, And it's an important principle as we uh, come to the supper. But second, there's that horizontal dimension, the the second uh, commandment. If you you want, the, the first commandment, Love for God is given to us in verse 7. And then the second uh, great commandment, a summary of the law, love for neighbor, is given to us in verse 8. This is the horizontal dimension. And above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Above all things means it has priority and importance. Calvin puts it this way. We're told what is first We're told to be fervent and we're told to be fruitful. First, fervent and fruitful. I think that's helpful because we're told that this is the first priority. It's the thing that has most importance in terms of our relationship with one another. To have fervent love. Fervent love. It means love at full stretch. It's the kind of of, uh, stretching out that a runner engages in when when they're heading for the tape. As we saw in the Olympics recently, these photo finishes where two runners are stretching for the tape and they're, and they're striving to reach it. But this word fervent is actually used in other places. It's used uh, in an important place of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Listen to what it says in Luke 24, or 22, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. That's the same word, earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. No one ever prayed as fervently, as earnestly as the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ in that garden prayed earnestly. And he prayed, as it says here, more earnestly. That's fervency. And that's the same word that's used to describe our love for one another. That's a pretty amazing thing. That we would have the earnestness of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane expressed in our love for one another. You say, well, that couldn't be expressed among believers. But the same word is used in Acts 12 and verse 5 when Peter's in prison. And it says that constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. Constant prayer. It's the very same word in the original. So what's translated earnestly in Luke 22:44 and constant in Acts 12, verse 5, is this very same word. The idea of fervency, stretching out the believers 
were concerned about Peter. Ironic that they didn't know he was at the door later on. That's the humorous part. The Word of God. The answer to their prayer was given, but they didn't recognize it. But in terms of prayer, they were fervent. They were praying constantly. And that's the language that's used to describe how we are to love one another. Now, what exactly is this love? Because if you if you read uh, the way uh, different people interpret it, some people think, think it's about God's love for us. And some people think it's about our love for other people. Is it the active sense or is it the passive sense? We just... Uh, We are about to uh, read together from Psalm 32, and verse, verse 1 says this, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Whose sin is covered. Transgression forgiven, sin covered. That's God's love. That's the kind of love that God gives. He's able to forgive transition. Uh, transgression. He's able to uh, cover sin. That's the active love of the living God. And we are being told that that uh, is the love that we are to extend to others. There is a sense in which we need to rely upon God's love in order to accomplish this. But there's something more being said than simply God's covering a multitude of sins. This he has done in Jesus Christ. This is he's extended to us. It's declared to us in Psalm 32, verse 1. But there's something more being said. The Apostle Peter is quoting uh, from Proverbs 10 and verse 12 when he writes this verse. Proverbs 10 and verse 12 uh, is, is the quote, but it needs to be understood a little bit more carefully in context in order to understand exactly uh, what the Holy Spirit is telling us. Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for, for this reason, love will cover a multitude of sins. If we read Proverbs chapter 10, we find out that verses 11 and 12 are very similar, and they're saying something to us about uh, the uh, interaction of uh, the righteous and the wicked. The verse 11 in Proverbs 10 says, The mouth of the righteous is a well of life, but violence covers the mouth of the wicked. And then verse 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. You see what's being said there? Love is in contrast to hatred, and covering sins is in contrast to strife. And what happens when there's strife between people? How do we respond? And we're not talking about the matter uh, of forgiveness that's addressed uh, in other uh, passages. When love covers wrong, it's speaking uh, of forgiveness. We're, we're told uh, to forgive. Uh, it's quite clear in a passage like Ephesians 4, verse 32, uh, that we are to forgive. Uh, when there is strife, uh, that is to be one of our one of our uh, goals is to forgive. Uh, we are told in Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Because we've been forgiven, we are to forgive. 
But there's something more in this contrast between hatred and love, this contrast between strife and covering sin. You see, it has to do with reconciliation. It has to do with the way that we speak to one another. In the context of the multitude of sins, we are being told that love covers a multitude of sins. We're being told that there's a a pathway away from strife, from hatred to love, from strife to covering sins. The pathway of reconciliation, the pathway of speech that enables us to reconcile. See, sometimes this is one of the biggest issues in the horizontal dimension of our lives. It's not that we that we don't see the need to forgive our brother or sister, especially when they when they repent, when they turn from their sins. We know that we're to forgive them. We have examples in uh, 1 Corinthians of a man sinning and 2 Corinthians where the man is to be restored. We understand that we are to forgive. We're, we're told to be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. But sometimes it's that in-between time, that time when uh, what what really needs to change is the way that we we respond to that person, the way that we begin to change our tone, the way that we begin to uh, speak words that will lead toward reconciliation, the way that we change, uh, the way that we interact with that person. That's the more reconciling aspect of it. The end of strife is the covering of a multitude of sins. Covering sins is designed to end strife. And we always say, well, it's a two-way street. If that person doesn't, doesn't stop the strife, how can I? But you see, that's not how we have been treated by the living God. That's not how uh, God has dealt with us. When we were his enemies, we were told, uh, Christ died for us. Romans 5 says, When we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Perhaps for a good man, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. What that's saying is, we were the enemies of God when we were reconciled by his son. And that's the pattern of this covering of a multitude of sins. You see, the Bible covers many topics. It covers forgiving others. It covers love. It tells us what love looks like in uh, that great passage in in 1 Corinthians uh, 13. But it's important that we recognize that there is a time when there's strife and that strife can be transformed by love that covers sin. By love that doesn't doesn't allow that sin to be... uh, a separating factor in the relationship in terms of our tone, in terms of our interaction, in terms of the bitterness that we that we cultivate in our heart, we're being called upon to love. And a, a love in, in a, that actually conquers strife. And so it's important for us to return back to the vertical dimension, the uh, work of the Lord Jesus Christ who continues to pray for us. The, remember that prayer warrior, the only one who was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? He continues to pray. 
in heaven. He's the one who continues to pray so that we might be saved to the uttermost. It's the Lord Jesus Christ who's going to be praying for you as you receive him in the supper. So that as you receive him in the supper, uh, you might receive what is truly needed and beneficial. Is there a place in, in your relationship with people in the body of Christ where there's strife that you can cover in a way that, that models love, that points people towards your willingness to forgive, but actually reconciles and moves them towards you? For that, you need the prayer of Jesus Christ. And you need to live in light of the end. You need to recognize that uh, it's time to get serious. But as we get serious, we also have this horizontal dimension of our relationship with other people. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, this word. Uh, We recognize that there are many aspects uh, to love. It's described for us in great detail in 1 Corinthians 13. And we're given uh, many surprising challenges uh, to our willingness and ability to carry out this love. But we know anytime we read this passage and anytime we hear about love that overcomes strife, that covers sin, that brings about reconciliation, it's through Jesus Christ. And so we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who accomplishes this, the one who suffers long and is kind, the one whose love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And you tell us quite clearly that the love of Jesus Christ, even the love that's expressed through your people in their relationships to people who are filled with strife, never fails. Give us grace to believe that. Help us as we take the supper to trust in the ways in which you are working out this love in our relationships with others in the body of Christ. We ask that you would make us serious, that we would live in light of the end. We ask that you would make us watchful because we know that there is one whose prayers enable us to be watchful. And we pray that you would teach us how to love fervently, extending ourselves vigorously, constantly loving, that we would even love those who are filled with strife, filled with hatred, and that we would desire reconciliation to the point that we're willing to cover sin. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins which is accomplished through the work of Jesus Christ, which is revealed to us in the supper. And Father, we're not the ones who can forgive on that level, but you teach us to cover sins. Calvin uses the language of burying. Please help us to bury those sins which cause strife between us and another person in the body of Christ. For the sake of Jesus, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.